Let's go to our seats and open our Bibles. Genesis chapter 18. Ricky will read it for us. This morning's reading comes from Genesis 18, verses 1 through 15. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree, while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves, and after that you may pass on, since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, three seals of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk in the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, no, but you did laugh. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, about 100 years ago in the 1970s and 80s, there was a TV ad campaign by E.F. Hutton, a brokerage firm. And so in these ads, there was a, a consistent uh, plot line. So you'd have these two people who are having a conversation, and they're in a busy area. You know, maybe it's uh, by poolside with a bunch of people around, or they're at a park or something like that, airport. And so they're talking about their investing. And so one of them is talking about, yeah, my broker says this, that, and the other thing. And then the other one says, well, my broker is E.F. Hutton. And E.F. Hutton says, and then the whole scene stops. Everyone freezes what they're doing to listen in to what E.F. Hutton says. Brilliant campaign. Very clever. Then the voiceover would come on. When E.F. Hutton speaks, people listen. So if you were alive at that time, you know exactly what I'm talking about. That, 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 I, you could have finished the sentence about when E.F. Hutton speaks. Now, brilliant ad, ad campaign. Um, but as history would unfold, well, about the same time as that ad campaign was going on, as E.F. Hutton is speaking you know, on the TVs around the country, it was also involved in this very elaborate, very extensive total fraud. And so 
the company was writing bad checks, and they were depositing other bad checks into other banks to cover for those bad checks. And so they, they, they discovered that they could do this, uh, this uh, fraudulent scheme and sort of have tax-free lending to themselves. And they got away with it for a while. They, they made, you know, made millions, at least for a little while, and then they got caught. And so the company is sort of still around. The name actually exists, but that's not the same company. It died out in the, about 1990, and then someone bought the brand, bought the, bought the name. And so it does exist in name, but not that original company. So in other words, when E.F. Hutton speaks, who cares? <laughs> they proved, uh, maybe we know what we're talking about, but don't listen to us. We're not trustworthy. We're not worth listening to when E.F. Hutton speaks. We don't need to take them at their word. In fact, we shouldn't take them at their word, at least that original E.F. Hutton company. But this morning, the message is to take God at his word. Take God at his word. When he speaks, you would do well to listen. When he speaks blessings, listen. When he speaks judgment, listen. He's no E.F. Hutton. He's no fraud. He's the real deal. So our response is to listen and believe what he says. Now, this series is right from the start. And this, this idea of God speaking and taking God seriously when he does speak, well, that's been there from the beginning. God said to Adam, do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Adam did. And horrible things erupted because of that. Well, this is another passage where we get to hear that message again, to listen when God speaks. So right from the start, that's true. In the middle, that's true. At the end, that's true. In the Bible, when he speaks, we should listen. Now, Moses is writing this in part one of his five-volume work of history, uh, the Pentateuch, uh, Genesis to Deuteronomy, which takes us from creation in the beginning all the way to the shoreline of Canaan. So Moses himself can't go to Canaan because he's disciplined by the Lord. But Israel is going to go into the land of Canaan in the book of Joshua. And so this five-volume set is to accompany them as they go into the nation. And in some ways, so, so we can, we can uh, reasonably guess that Moses is writing this during those 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. So he delivers them, you know, his, his magnum opus, so that they would never forget who they are, and they would never forget whose they are. They belong to God. No territorial God that occupies this place, but not that place. No, this is the God who created heaven and earth everything. So that in all times and in all situations, they would take God at his word. Now, if you're not a Christian, in some ways, your takeaway for the morning is the same as my takeaway as a Christian and others as, as a Christian. It is to take God at his word. The God that we're reading about here, the God who speaks in the, in the passages we're going to look at, is the true and living God. You would do well to listen, take God at his word, So we want to take God at his word, number one, when he speaks blessing, and number two, when he speaks judgment. When he speaks blessing and when he speaks judgment. Let's pray. 
Father, we thank you that you have left for us your word. This inerrant, inspired, authoritative, sufficient, necessary word. On our own, we, we cannot reason our way to truth. We cannot deduce our way to who you are and what you require of us. Lord, we need your word to understand the world as you've made it and to understand who you are. And so, Lord, give us ears to hear. Give us hearts that love your word and a mind that day and night meditates upon your word. May we return to this word over and over again every day and week and month and year of our lives. And we pray, Lord, for a couple of pastors in the area. We pray for Willie Harris at Mount Zion. And thank you for his faithful ministry to you. Would you bless them as they gather this morning, as he preaches this morning? Would you bless them? And we thank you, Lord, that he will be joining us this summer preaching to us. And we pray for Maurice Wright and the loss of his father. We pray that you would be with him as he mourns and as he is with his family, grieving, feeling a profound loss. Uh, Would you just be with him in this new chapter of his life, which he's been anticipating for a while, but not at all looking forward to. So bless Maurice in that. And Lord, we pray for our own church here, this administrative assistant that we that we need, would you bring the right person to our office, this little office staff that we have? We know that every, every new member makes such, a, uh, such an impact, and so bring the right person uh, to us, Lord, we pray. Lord, speak to us this morning through the lives of Abraham and Sarah. Let, the, let them affect us deeply, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, point one, we want to take God at his word when he speaks blessing. <clears throat> Now, this story, chapter 18, is likely at, at most within a few months of chapter 17. Chapter 17, if you recall, one of the, one of the great covenant chapters uh, about the Abrahamic covenant where he, uh, the Lord makes great promises, I will be your God, you will be my people, to you, your offspring after you. Um, and then he brings the requirement of circumcision. And actually, at the end of that chapter, there's this promise about Isaac, that God would or God would bring to Abraham an heir through Sarah, and you shall name him Isaac. Now, all of these events are about 25 years after God's initial call of Abraham. So God called Abraham at 75 years old. So if you're here and you're 75, God might have a significant work for you to do yet. Likely won't involve having a child, so be at peace. Uh, however, it could be significant work nonetheless. But it's actually not until Abraham is 99 that he's given this, this promise that within one year you will have a son. So our chapter says that he's by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. Mamre's a little to the south of Jerusalem near Hebron. But the fact that he's in a tent should strike us. This is the great patriarch who has promised the land of Canaan. You and your people shall have this land. But when we meet him at 100 years old, effectively, he's in a tent in the heat of the day, essentially a nomad, a sojourner. He doesn't occupy any of the land. None of it has his name on it. No deed in that land has his name on it. So he's traveled throughout that land. He's built altars as God has revealed himself to him. But he occupies and owns none of it. He's still waiting for the promised land in a sense. But then it says that the Lord, Yahweh, appeared to him in verse 1. The Lord appeared to him. 
Not in a vision like in chapter 15, but in this strange, tangible way. Now, when, when it says Yahweh appeared, well, the next thing it says is, behold, three men were standing in front of Abraham. That's unexpected. Now, our Christian antennas up, we're always looking for the Trinity in the Old Testament, but this is not the Trinity. So if we fast forward a bit, we can see that these, these two men are separated from the Lord. So these two men are going to go to Sodom themselves. And then in 19.1, they're actually described as two angels. So it's two angels and then Yahweh. Those are the three men that have gathered there. And, we, and in some ways, we're wondering throughout, does Abraham really get who this is? And we're not totally resolved in that one way or the other. But it does seem like he gets, you know, there's just something about these guys. So he calls, he calls them Adonai in verse 3. And that form of Adonai is not simply a respectful term for, uh, O Lord or Master, you know, a sign of respect. But it does seem like he's, he's using the name that would be appropriate if it was God, if he was referring to God. And then there's also this significant urgency, you know, verse 6. So he, he races into Sarah. Well, he goes into the tent. She's right there. Goes to Sarah, quick, three seas of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And then gets a calf, serves it, a, a very high energy, uh, urgent kind of hospitality situation. Seems like there's more than simply his typical Bedouin hospitality, which is at, which is at play here. But he does, it does seem like he gets something, that this is a special visitor. And then this special visitor... In some ways, he's going he's to restate, the Lord's going to restate what he's already stated, but now he's going to restate it, in some ways, particularly for Sarah. So, he's, so the Lord had promised in, in 17 all that he's going to promise in, verse eight, in chapter 18, but now it's particularly with Sarah in view. And in verse 10, we get the promise. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and, your, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door beside him. Now, obviously, a tent is not a great sound barrier. You know, animal skins are not a great soundproofing mechanism. So she heard everything. The first, and this is the promise. Sarah, your son, shall have a son. Sorry, Sarah, your wife, shall have a son within a year. Now, when we read this in chapter 18, it feels like a pretty straightforward prophesy, prophecy. So God prophesies, and we know that God keeps his word, and so that prophecy is going to happen within the year. We know how... Genesis continues, so we know that Isaac is, in fact, born and all of that. But when you fast forward to, to Romans chapter 9, Paul actually draws out a very profound lesson here, which we would not catch just reading it in, uh, in the natural course of reading. And so in Romans chapter 9, what Paul tells us is that this is actually an illustration of God's election, choosing some and not choosing others. Choosing some not just for uh, kind of a... Um, a vague promise, but choosing some for actually for salvation and not choosing others. So let me read Romans 9, just excerpt a couple excerpts from it, because he does cite this particular verse in 1810. So um, just to give a little bit of context, so he's, he's preaching the gospel in Romans, uh, the, the most famous gospel presentation in all of history. And he gets to the, the what about Israel? God promised his salvation to Israel. Many in Israel do not believe. Does that mean the word of God has failed? That's kind of the question on the table that he's addressing in Romans 9. And so he says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. 
For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. And here we have the Genesis quote, Genesis 18.10. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. God choosing Isaac, but not Ishmael. God choosing Jacob, but not Esau. Is his sovereign election at work? And what Paul tells us here is that this is illustrating a larger truth which we all experience. We're either his by divine election or we're not his also by divine choice. He's going to go on as he's arguing the point. He's going to look at, at, the, at Moses and Pharaoh and he's going to conclude that section in verse, eight, verse 18, chapter, Romans 9, 18, and say this, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. And then he kind of makes his concluding point after he's given the illustrations he's going to sum it up in these last three verses of of this discussion that we're going to look at what if god desiring to show his wrath and to make his power known make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory even us whom he has called, not from Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. So we are all either vessels of mercy prepared beforehand for glory or vessels of wrath prepared beforehand for destruction. And so this, this moment in the, the history of Abraham is an illustration of that fact. Now, when we, when we hear the doctrine of election as a Christian, we praise God for it. If we hear it as a non-Christian, be at peace. The offer of salvation has gone out. There is salvation in Christ for all who call on him. There is salvation in Christ for all who call on him. God promises to save those who call on his name. So we go back now to Genesis 18. So as I said, Sarah couldn't help but eavesdrop. She's in the tent. There's only animal skins uh, uh, blocking her. And she reacts. So we get, we get actually a vivid description of Sarah herself from, from Moses. This is in verse 11. Now Abraham and Sarah were old. This is just a factual statement. It's not making a, a judgment or a criticism in any way. Just a factual statement. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. In other words, she couldn't naturally, biologically have a child. She was no longer able to have a child. And, and then we get her reaction. Verse 12. So Sarah laughed to herself. 
saying, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? And then you get this back and forth between uh, the Lord talking to Abraham, but kind of talking to Sarah. Why did she laugh? She didn't, I didn't laugh. Yes, you did. <clears throat> so in those, those back and forth with the Lord, just stop. <laughs> I admit it. I laughed. You know all things. You know my heart. If I didn't laugh out loud, you know I laughed inside. The Lord knows all things. Now, she actually isn't the first person to laugh at this promise. The first person to laugh at the promise was Abraham. So when Abraham in chapter 17 is given this promise that you will have a, you will have a son and you'll name him Isaac, well, Abraham bows down and he laughs to himself. How could this be? And in some ways, there's a hint of unbelief in both of their laughters. And so it's very fitting that the name Isaac would be given, and Isaac means he laughs. We're not told which laugh is, is implied there by he laughs. Is it the laugh of unbelief early, or is it the laugh of joy when Isaac actually comes? Is, is God the one laughing? Ha! I told you I would do it, and you did it. Or I did it. You didn't believe me? I did it. But at this point, as she laughs, it's clear that her, her problem isn't a biological problem, a, a, an understanding of her own biology. She knows factually it's true. I can't have a child. If it's up to me and my husband, we cannot have a child. Her problem is her understanding of God. Even if your biology understanding is sound, the greater truth in any situation is always who this God is that we're dealing with. And so in verse 14, we get this great question. Is anything, and it's the Lord asking the question, is anything too hard for the Lord? That's after he says, why did Sarah laugh? Is anything too hard for the Lord? And of course, at that point, the Lord is talking to Sarah, right? Is anything too hard for the Lord? And about 18 centuries later, another woman is also going to be having a discussion about a very unlikely child that she was promised to give birth to. And in that discussion, she's talking to an angel. The young virgin is Mary, and the angel is the angel Gabriel. And she's going to ask... Kind of a similar question, but she's going to ask it in faith. How will this be since I am a virgin? She knows how things typically work. How will this be since I am a virgin? And Gabriel's answer is very similar to what is spoken to Sarah. Nothing will be impossible with God, for nothing will be impossible with God. Biology is not a limiter for God. There's no natural obstacle that can stop God from doing what he wants to do. Nothing will be impossible with God. Almost just a restatement of what the Lord says to Sarah. Is anything too hard for the Lord? And what you see in the Bible is that barrenness very often is the context in which God shows up and does the miraculous. So it happens to Sarah. It happens to Rebecca and Isaac. It happens to Hannah, Samuel's mother. And then ultimately, in the grandest event, it happens with Mary. Now, Sarah is rebuked at this point, as I said, for her laughter. She is going to laugh with joy and celebration when Isaac is actually born. So in chapter 21, it says, And Sarah said, God has made me laughter, sorry, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, 
Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Karen Hodge and Susan Hunt in their book, Transformed, are reflecting on Sarah's development, her sanctification, her progress of holiness. And so they write that as we continue to travel with Sarah, we see that like Eve and like us, her sanctification is slow. But through every experience, side trip, and delay, God was with her, sovereignly working everything together to accomplish his purpose. Her story dazzles us with God's persevering love for his chosen ones. His sovereignty assures us that he can keep his promises, and his love assures us that he will. This knowledge is indeed powerfully transforming. And then they say a few pages later, newsflash. Our situation and relationships do not make make us manipulative and harsh. They reveal the wickedness in our hearts. So the unbelief, at times the bitterness of Sarah, those weren't caused by her situations. They simply revealed some things in her heart that God was working out. And yes, sanctification is slow. But part of our growth in sanctification is believing God when he speaks When he speaks promises, we believe it, and we work hard to believe it. And when he tells us that he's going to bring good out of bad situations, we work hard to take him at his word, and we believe it. So before God's word to blessing, whatever those blessings might be, we just also want to ask that question, is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? That's a great question to ask ourselves. Is anything too hard for the Lord? And of course, the answer is no. Let's point one. Point two, we we take God at his word when he speaks judgment. So now the blessing, or the word, the focus changes from blessing to judgment, particularly God's judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. And if you're not a Christian, you've probably heard of Jerusalem, I can almost guarantee you've heard of Jerusalem, maybe even Babylon. But there's maybe a decent chance, though, that you've heard of Sodom or Sodom and Gomorrah. They're notorious cities, famous for their sin and what, what God brought onto those cities. But let's start with where the passage starts, which is God's agenda in Abraham's life, verses 16 to 21. Uh, Genesis 18 and verses 16 to 21. So then the men set out from there. So two of the men. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Now these passages where the Lord appears not to know things, just know that what's going on there is God is training his people. There's a a process going on here. And God is bringing Abraham through a process. God as the sovereign one knows all the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah. But he has things he wants to say to Abraham, and he has things he wants to do in Abraham's life. 
God has made great promises to Abraham, and now we get some sense of the great responsibility that goes along with those great promises. He's going to be a great and mighty nation, and he's going to be the source of blessing on all the nations. We see that in verse 18. But he's also chosen for a task, which is going to require a lot of work and effort and intentionality on his part. It's a teaching, and it's, and it's a discipling task. So we see that in verse 19. I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Now at this point, Abraham does not have uh, his heir, Isaac, yet. But remember back in chapter 13, when he, or chapter 14, when he went to deliver a lot the first time, it, it makes it kind of a passing reference to the fact that he had 318 trained men born in his household. So this is a significant household operation that he has. He might not own the land where he is, but it's a significant operation that's going on here. But now what we see is that he's being tasked by the Lord to teach them, to train them, to equip them so that they might keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. And righteousness and justice, in some ways, is a, is a summary phrase. It's used all throughout the Bible to capture sort of the, the vertical side of our, of our life, our relationship with God, where we're keeping his word, we're walking in faith, we're worshiping him, we're doing all those things, we're receiving from him, we're submitted to him. So that's the righteousness. But then justice is the horizontal side of our lives. We treat people as they should be treated. We give them their due. We treat them rightly according to God's standards and God's laws. So when it says, keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, it means all that's required for the people of God. All the behaviors, all the understandings, all the truths they need to understand, all of that is wrapped up in that, keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. And it's good to see that it's not just a, an informational project. Pass along the truth that you've received. But what the goal of this impartation project, the goal of this discipling and teaching and training project is that they would live it. Keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and truth. Not just by reciting things that are true and right, but actually doing righteousness and truth. That's a much, a much more intensive, comprehensive goal that we have for all those that we're responsible for. We don't just want them to know certain facts about the Bible or know certain things, but we want them to do righteousness and truth. Now, part of Abraham passing that along is that Abraham himself has to own what is righteousness and truth, so he need, or righteousness and justice. So he needs to understand it himself and, and be able to live it and keep it before he can pass it along to others. And so in some ways, there's, a, there's a, a bit of a righteousness and justice exercise that the Lord is going to walk Abraham through at this, at this moment. So he announces to Abraham that the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah in verse 20, it says that their sin is very grave. It's a serious sin. Now, that's not a total shock. Back in Genesis 13, it says that now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. And so when Lot, so Lot and Abraham separate, and, Lot, and Abraham gives Lot the choice of where to go. So when Lot chooses Sodom, it wasn't a good choice. That was, in some ways, it was a, it was a sign of weakness and maybe even sinfulness on Lot's part. 
He's being drawn to the wrong things. Lot is a bit of a mixed character. So the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. And because Lot is there, well, Sodom and Gomorrah is not some random city. So when the Lord says the, the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah is very great, bad things are about to happen, essentially is what the Lord is saying. Well, Abraham is alert. He thinks, I care about that. I care about the, the state of Sodom and Gomorrah. And so then we get one of the most, certainly one of the most unusual conversations that God has with any person in the whole Bible. Uh, it's, it's as if Abraham is buying a camel, but he's negotiating for the, the welfare of a city. And so we'll read that now. So this is uh, 18, 22 to 33. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham st- uh, still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Again, he spoke to him and said, suppose 40 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. And then he said, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again but this once. Suppose ten are found there. He answered, for the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. It's a fascinating back and forth. It's interesting that he appeals step by step from 50 down to 10, and it's interesting that he stops at 10. That somehow he, he had a sense that if there were 50 people there, it actually would be unjust to wipe out the whole city. But somehow he knew that if there were less than 10, I don't think I could demand of the Lord that. If it's less than 10, I don't think I could demand of the Lord to, to preserve the city. So the, and it, there was some sense of justice in Abraham's responses, in other words. And because... This is, a, this is, in some ways, a training exercise of Abraham, Abraham himself. It's significant what he's, that, how he appeals. Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? And then he asks that, that rhetorical question very powerfully. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Another powerful question. That's, it's not a question, is it? It's a statement. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Yes, of course he will. Yes, the Lord, uh, the judge of all the earth shall do what is just. Abraham knows that he will. Now, what proves to be true is that there aren't 10 righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah. We think maybe there's one who is Lot, but actually, as you read the story of Lot, it becomes a bit mixed. But we'll just assume that Lot is, is the one righteous person. So what's going to happen is the two angels are going to go to Sodom and Gomorrah. 
They're going to go to Lot's house, and when they do, the city proves immediately just how wicked it is. And so in 19, verses 4 and 5, we read that before they lay down, in other words, the two angels and then the men in Lot's house, before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And we're supposed to see the sheer comprehensiveness of the gathering. Every single male. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. So homosexual gang rape. That's what, that's what they want to do here. That's what they're threatening. Again, as the Lord said, their sin is very grave. And so in a desperate act, Lot offers his own two daughters instead. Here, take my daughters. And at that point, the angels step in and say, this is madness. You know, this is wicked madness. Stop. And so they strike all the men surrounding the house with blindness. They pull Lot back in, in a sense, saving him from himself. And they basically tell them, get your family, and we're leaving. So his wife and daughters follow him, but his sons-in-law thought he was jesting, and so they stay back. So Lot and his family make it to a nearby small city, Zor, and then God rains down sulfur and fire out of heaven and destroys Sodom and Gomorrah. So it's no doubt true that homosexuality is far from the only sin of the Sodomites, in other words, the people of Sodom. But homosexuality is the one that's highlighted in the chapter. That's the one that seems most directly connected to the sulfur and the fire. And one of the clearest truths in the Bible is that homosexuality is immoral and wrong, the act of practice. It's condemned as an abomination in the law of Moses. So in Leviticus 20, if a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. So, you know, monogamous or not, the physical act is an abomination. And if we think that the New Testament is nicer about that sin, that's just not true. So we get to Romans 1. For this reason, God, so as, as people reject God, God gives them over to their own sinfulness. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passions for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And then we get to 1 Corinthians 6. And I'm going to use the New English translation because it it brings out some things which the ESV doesn't quite bring out. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. The sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, passive homosexual partners, practicing homosexuals, in other words, both parties in the homosexual act, passive homosexual partners, practicing homosexuals, thieves, the greedy, drunkards, the verbally abusive, and swindlers will not inherit the kingdom of God. Horrible sins but we don't want to put them on the list of unforgivable sins. They're unforgivable if you don't repent. But if you repent, well, the next verse tells us what can be true. 1 Corinthians 6, 11, the very next verse. And such were some of you. So Paul talking to the Corinthians. Such were some of you, 
but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. In Christ, there is forgiveness. In Christ, there is justification, sanctification, being washed clean of all of your sins, whatever they might be. So we want to be clear about what a sin is, but we also want to be clear about where forgiveness is. Forgiveness is in Christ, and it's a comprehensive total forgiveness. All your sins, gone. No more barrier between you and the Lord. No judgment coming for you in the future. Maybe his discipline to help you grow and become more holy, but not his final judgment where you're sent into hell for your sins. It's faith in Christ that takes you from 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10 to 1 Corinthians 6, 11. Faith in Christ is what gets you there. So we want to take God at his word. We want to take God at his word when he speaks blessings. Because after all, is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? The answer is absolutely not. And we want to take God at his word when he speaks judgment. Because shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? So a couple things in response. One is, as parents and as those who have responsibility for others, we, want to, we really want to take note of that description of the task that we have. I've chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. That training to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. A very close parallel to what Ephesians 6.4 says. Bring them up, fathers... Bring up those children that you have in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The helpful dynamic that Genesis 18 brings out is that doing. We want, our, we want the people that are responsible for not just to know the truths, but we want them to do righteousness and justice. So we want to take God at his word in that we want to see the seriousness of sin, the reality of judgment, but we do want to hear God's word is equally foundational and true and unwavering when he offers forgiveness in Christ. Ephesians 1.7, in him, in Christ, we have for redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you in a chapter like this, passages like this. We thank you for the sheer humanity that is before us. We know that these aren't imaginary heroes and heroines that we look at, but these are, these are real people that struggle and need sanctification like us. There is an impressiveness about Abraham, and, there's some, and at the same time, there is a, a real accessibility. We, we read about his life. We read about the laughter of Sarah at inopportune times. And we say, yes, Lord, we are like that. Our faith wavers. We buckle. We hear your word and we, and we buckle. We fail to comprehend your ability to keep your promises. We fail to, re to rightly repent when you speak sobering words about sin and judgment. So, Lord, we pray. We pray for new hearts, hearts of flesh and not of stone, hearts that will believe and do your word. 
Let us be those who own it ourselves, and at the same time, those who are able to pass along to others the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. And we pray that we would be catalysts in our own families and in all of our relationships and even our own country. Let us be catalysts for righteousness and justice, Lord. Lord, we look around us and it's clear that, that uh, the world has, has lost sight of righteousness and is confused about what true justice is. And so Lord, we pray that as we have opportunity, you would help us to speak and act in such a way that righteousness and justice spread throughout the land. Use us, Lord, in that. And we give you praise and thanks just as we opened our service by singing of the blood of Christ and the forgiveness that we have in it. And so we end that way, Lord, thanking you for that offering which brings to us forgiveness of sins. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.